Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're going to be taking a look at the ongoing conflict in eastern Ukraine with a special focus on the Russian military. But before you get to that, are you at your computer right now? If so, what better time to subscribe or to follow PolicyCast? We have a great slate of guests this year, and we wouldn't want you to miss out on any of them. Look us up on Twitter at PolicyCast, or visit our Tumblr page at hkspolicycast.org. Now, back to the topic at hand. Today we're joined by Dmitry Gorenberg, a senior research scientist at the Center for Naval Analysis, as well as an associate at Harvard's Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. Dmitry, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So let's begin with what's happening on the ground right now. In August of this year, it became clear that Russia was moving troops into Ukraine. Uh, Previously, they had been supporting uh, pro-Russian rebels in eastern Ukraine with uh, military gear, um, supplies, but it's become increasingly clear that now they're moving troops, which is a significant escalation even if they're not publicly acknowledging that it's happening. Um, Can you explain what exactly is going on here? I think the goals for uh, Russia have been actually somewhat constant since since the spring, uh, which is that uh, the initial idea was to prevent Ukraine from becoming too closely allied with the West. The way to do that was to create a separatist-controlled enclave in eastern Ukraine. There were certainly initially some improvisational qualities, so it wasn't clear how much support there would be, how many uh, regions might go over to to the um, pro-Russian side. Uh, as it turned out, it was just uh, parts of, of two regions. And so as long as the separatists seemed to be holding their own, there was no need for Russia to provide too much assistance. But as the Ukrainian army kind of got its act together and the government became more organized, uh, the tide of the battle turned against the separatists. And, that's wh- and that was... Uh, sort of late June, early July, after the first ceasefire, as the as the separatists were being pushed back, the Russian government started to provide more and more assistance. So first we saw more and more heavy weaponry being provided. Then there was when that wasn't enough, there was shelling across the border at the Ukrainian army to, uh, with the goal of preventing the border from being sealed off. And that succeeded in that, but it wasn't helpful for. Uh, winning the fight in areas that were farther away from the border, like in the cities of Donetsk and Luhansk. So uh, at that point, the Russian troops were brought in. But throughout, the goal has been to prevent the separatists from being defeated, because that's the that's uh, the way that Russia can uh, uh, maintain its influence um, in Ukraine. Is it just to kind of create, stir up trouble there, so that there's not going to be a, uh, a a cohesive government in Ukraine? That's the intent, but the, but there's a wider, uh, larger goal to that policy, which is NATO has a rule for uh, that uh, if there are territorial disputes, then the country can't be admitted into NATO. And Russia leaders truly believe that Ukraine is a potential NATO member, you know, as much as some parts of the alliance say that, oh, no, we don't really think Ukraine is going to be in. There's been enough contrary signals over the years that the Russians don't really trust that. So as long as Ukraine isn't unified, the theory goes that NATO won't want them because there's too much of a chance for conflict with Russia. And then second, if their eventual deal that they're looking for uh, allows the eastern regions to have more of a veto power over foreign policy, that would also uh, be part of the game plan. 
is the long-term future is is the idea that um, these these separate or the eastern Ukraine areas uh, will become like what happened to uh, Georgia in and you know uh, however long ago that was what was that two thousand eight yeah uh, I think I, more like Transnistria which is the region in Moldova that mm-hmm. was uh, has been de facto separate since. 92 or so mm-hmm. uh, because I don't think they're going to go as far the, in Georgia there was a recognition by Russia of um, independence of those two regions and I don't think the, the signals right now are that they're not interested in mm-hmm. that uh, or they went, might have made moves along those lines mm-hmm. already instead what we're seeing is maybe some kind of unrecognized because because if, if those regions become independent then they have no influence in Kiev right uh, and that, def- and then the rest of Ukraine becomes even more pro-Western without the most, uh, right? The, you know, the most Russian-associated uh, regions, right? So, They've already lost Crimea, which was very pro-Russian, right? And and so, so that I think it's not in Russia's interest to actually have an independent. Uh, uh, Donbass region. So they recently reached a ceasefire agreement. Um, you know, by the time this airs, it may <laughs> no longer be in effect. Um, but the negotiations for that seem at least somewhat odd to me because Russia was on the offensive. It was it was winning. The rebels were uh, had pushed back the um, Kiev government's uh, offense and. Um, I didn't quite understand why. Why would Russia, you know, enter into those negotiations? Is that why? Is that um, was it essentially because they just want to create that region to have its own uh, control, but still be a part of Ukraine? Yeah, yeah, and I think that given the political perceptions, uh, both domestically and internationally, uh, and the, Russia's uh, refusal to acknowledge that it's involved, right? As long as Ukraine was winning, they didn't want to ceasefire, right? So. So now that the Ukrainian side was looking for a ceasefire, if Russia said, oh, no, we don't want that, that would sort of look bad, right? Because uh, they've been, they've, all along they've been saying we, we want to deal. And this way, they still get their goals. And if the ceasefire breaks down, which it may, you know, they're, they're no worse off. Uh, and if the ceasefire continues, then they can start talking about some of these uh, political mm-hmm. solutions uh, that uh, that might be to their advantage also. Mm-hmm. It seemed like the terms of the ceasefire were very pro-Russian. It seemed like, uh, I believe there was a, at least a rumor that um, it was personally penned by Vladimir Putin, some of the, the page and a half of um, terms that were it, it, agreed to. They're actually not as pro-Russian as, as some might say, because a, a lot of it is very comparable to terms that the Ukrainian president has also proposed. Mm-hmm. There, I, I think it's, it's actually, you know, there's, there's talk of pulling illegal armed formations out, and that applies to both sides, uh, because there were certainly paramilitary-type groups fighting on the Ukrainian side. But since, since the Russian regular army units are not acknowledged, mm-hmm. and, and frankly are not, I mean, they play an important supporting role, but there's, we should not forget that this, there is a large separatist paramilitary component in this that is playing the primary role in the fighting with uh, artillery and the other Russian troops and weapons uh, sort of backing up those separatists. So, it's, so yeah, I think the ceasefire is just, uh, you know, it's just they're not shooting at each other right now. Right. Everything else... We'll see if it actually is an implemented or not, and sure. sort of in terms of withdrawal of troops and political deals, and the, I think there'll be more negotiations and more agreements, right. or not. But if 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 it is implemented, they'll this is not 
the final word. A lot of the conversation about the greater geopolitical scene kind of centers around uh, Vladimir Putin against the West. It seems yeah. like, um, you know, you, you constantly hear this theme about, you know, Putin is playing chess while the West is playing checkers. Or uh, You've spoken or written before about the personalization of these greater forces. Can you describe, you don't think that that's necessarily the right lens through which to view the conflict? Yeah, acknowledging that Vladimir Putin wields a lot of power mm-hmm. in Russia and in and uh, the has a primary decision-making role. At the same time, we have to think about, I think the danger of personalization is the concurrent demonization, right? That you start thinking, uh, or our, people start arguing that Putin is irrational, he's bent on world domination, you know, people start talking about Munich, uh, right? And there's certainly some chance that that's true, but it seems to me you know, far more likely that Russia has particular goals. And so the important thing to do is to try to figure out what those goals are, and then, then the policymakers can think about, do we want to counter all those goals with the danger of further escalation? Uh, or are there, is it possible that we could find some compromise where... As in any compromise, that means that Russia and Putin get th- some of what they uh, you know, achieve some of their goals, mm-hmm. and the West achieves some of its goals, and neither side achieves all of its goals, right? Mm-hmm. But that kind of thinking isn't really possible when everyone uh, assumes that the opponent is irrational and bent on world domination. So that's that that's that's really what I'm trying to get at. Right. So NATO recently met in in Wales. Uh, the NATO member states came to some agreements including further sanctions on Russia, uh, the creation of a um, uh, what was it a, a spearhead force I think it was yeah, called rapid reaction e- exactly yeah. um, a lot of this is in response to some NATO states especially Baltic states uh, Poland worrying about Russia being close to their borders and and doing something that would likely be rash is that a real fear or is that just a reaction to what you were just talking about you know um, is Russia bent on world domination you know so I think you know, it depends on what, where you, where exactly you are in Eastern Europe. I think for the Baltics, it is very much a real fear and possibly a justified one. I don't think anyone, even in the Baltics, they're not that worried about a big Russian invasion. You know, you know, with tanks coming in, but they are worried and uh, legitimately so about uh, kind of subversive actions, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to destabilize the countries, especially uh, in Estonia and Latvia, where they're fairly sizable. Uh, Russian, uh, ethnic Russian and Russian-speaking minorities that could potentially be used to um, destabilize the local politics, maybe uh, create some kind of local insurgency. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that if something like that were to happen, it's possible that Russia could then act to support it, right, mm-hmm. uh, more overtly. Uh, but uh, for NATO, that's not a direct attack. Right. So... The Balts are worried about, you know, what happens if Russia supports Donbass-style insurgency in, you know, Narva or somewhere mm-hmm. in, uh, in the Baltics. And NATO says, well, we can't prove that it's Russia attacking. How do, we, how do they defend themselves against that? And I'm right. not sure that all these rapid reaction forces are necessarily a response to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're clearly a signal and uh, that... It's better to not mess around in the Baltics because you don't know what will happen, right? right. And so in that, they're helpful uh, in that regard. But how to reassure the Baltics that 
aggressive actions short of direct attack mm-hmm. uh, would be prevented. So we had last week, there was this case of an Estonian security officer who was, uh, if you accept the Estonian version, kidnapped by Russian agents across the border. Mm-hmm. You know, the Russians say he was on Russian territory carrying right. out some kind of spying mission. So this kind of thing, right, could, mm-hmm. uh, has a potential of escalating. You know, right. one ca- one person... Probably not, but if it's come, you know, if it keeps happening, it's kind of a way of undermining that uh, security. It seems like Ukraine is is just a uh, trial case for for this kind of action. Well, I wouldn't call it a trial case because Ukraine is much uh, Ukraine is actually much more important right. to uh, mm-hmm. to Russia than than the Baltics are. Mm-hmm. But so, in terms of supporting an internal insurgency. Yeah, I mean they've that, that actually they've also been doing for in uh, for for years, just not quite as overtly, mm-hmm. right? So there's. Some decent evidence that throughout the 90s, even, there was a lot of these uh, frozen conflicts uh, in uh, the Caucasus in mm-hmm. Transnistria that I mentioned before were getting assistance from from, from Russia mm-hmm. uh, covertly. So I think this is a model that they've been using, and it's just that Ukraine is a much bigger stage, and Crimea actually paint, has painted everything in a different light because that mm-hmm. was an annexation, right? Right. So I can see where if Crimea hadn't happened first and there was this kind of separatist uh, conflict in uh, eastern Ukraine without overt Russian support, like it, like it was for the first couple of months, mm-hmm. that it would be very... Um, uh, it would be much more difficult for NATO and the West to really kind of say, oh, this is Russia doing this, so we have to impose sanctions and do all these things. Right. Uh, it was really Crimea that sort of changed everyone's perceptions of uh, the extent to which Russia was playing by the by the rules of the game. Right, right yeah. And so after that, everything was kind of seen in the light of Russia has violated the rules of the game right. and is continuing to do so rather than... There's still plausible deniability here, so so we'll, we'll just uh, pretend nothing's going on. You've written before about this um, kind of burgeoning theory in Russian foreign policy circles that uh, a lot of these color revolutions are essentially, um, you know, a tools that Western governments, particularly the United States, are using um, to reduce Russia's sphere of influence and uh, topple opposing governments. Well, well, that's what the Russians say. I'm yes, not saying yes. I, no, 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 I'm sorry. It's not, not my interpretation at all. <laughs> right, right. Well, okay. I Absolutely right. Um, well, I guess my question is, does the theory carry any water? And... Um, I mean, it's, it actually seems kind of like that's what they're doing now. <laughs> right, right. And that's, uh, and, and that's exactly it. As with all theories, that, you know, in, in order to, be, uh, to get some resonance, uh, they have to have a grain of truth, right? And so the Russian argument that the color revolutions are a big plot to destabilize various parts of the world and overthrow pro uh, or anti-Western regimes with pro-Western regimes actually, you know, looks a little bit plausible. You look at Iraq, you look at all these cases, but it, I think it gives too much credence to the, this idea that the West has this plan, right? I think what's actually going on is much more, in, in the West, is much more reactive and individual cases without necessarily thinking through, you know, the long-term conflicts, uh, consequences of some of these actions. I don't think, you know, given where we are in, in Syria and Iraq right now, I think that if the U.S. government really thought that uh, ISIS was going to be the result of protests against, uh, uh, a peaceful protests against Assad, mm-hmm. they may not have been so eager to support that. I, I don't know, but that that's sort of a possibility. But the Russian side is right to the extent that the effect of most of these color revolutions has not been so much democracy, uh, unfortunately, but has been instability mm-hmm. and conflict. And so 
they do want to prevent that, uh, certainly on their own territory and in the surround countries around that, and they're taking steps to prevent domestically any kind of regime change. And then there are certainly some pages borrowed from what they think is the Western playbook. Now, I'm not sure if they think this is the Western playbook because they, that's how they interpret the West or because this is the kind of thing they've been doing for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that the West would also be doing, you know, kind of this right. mirror imaging kind of kind of thing. So, uh, but it is, yeah, there are a lot of uh, parallels to, uh, you know, in Ukraine, the initial separatist moves were to take over administration buildings in, uh, in regions. Well, that's what the pro-Western protesters did a couple months before that, mm-hmm. before Yanukovych was overthrown, right? So right. so it's the same playbook. It's done differently, right? So when it was done in Lviv or in um, you know, Ivano-Frankivsk or some of the western re- uh, Ukrainian regions, it was kind of big crowds of people sort of uh, really upset about what the Yanukovych-installed governors were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in eastern Ukraine, there was some of that for sure, but there were also uh, some assistance, uh, you know, with the little green men and that sort of thing. So, so you know, just a little boost to make sure that the uh, building takeovers happen. But it's then easy to justify because you say, well, why is it okay for you guys to do that over there in January, but not okay for us to do it here in May. So where do you see this going in the next months, years? Do you think this is an effective tactic? Do you think you're going to see um, kind of the taunt in, uh, in eastern Ukraine where, you know, they become this pseudo-independent state of Ukraine? Or I don't see a military s- solution that results in Ukraine, in that territory, coming back under the rule of the central government in, in Kiev, mm-hmm. uh, just because uh, we've seen, you know, however strong the Ukrainian military gets, it's not going to be stronger than the Russian military. And Russia's shown that it's perfectly willing to provide more and more escalating assistance if mm-hmm. necessary. So to me, uh, you know, I don't know how it'll actually turn out because I'm not sure that there are polit- internal political factors in Ukraine that are pushing against a compromise. So mm-hmm. it could be that we have a return to, to conflict, even though it's really against Ukrainian interests, I think, at this point. Not that I don't sympathize with, you know, wanting to keep your the territorial, but I just right. don't think it's going to be achieved through, through a military solution at this time. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, either a ongoing conflict that could last, a, you know, some months longer, uh, or this kind of ceasefire that freezes the current control in place, more or less, with potential political agreement down the road to sort of stand down the militias and, but still allow for a sort of pro-Russian governments in the regions. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the decentralization method uh, policies that uh, have been pushed, including by Putin, would actually be good for Ukraine. So, electing governors rather than appoint, having them all appointed from the center would actually be a good thing, and would and was something that a lot of uh, Analysts were advocating even you know, before the conflict became violent as mm-hmm. just a way of uh, sort of diffusing tensions by allowing more self-government. Sure. So that kind of thing would, would actually be helpful for Ukrainian political development. Uh, I don't think in the, in the current environment, you know, the governors of at least some of those, you know, those two regions and maybe some others would be clearly pro-Russian. And, and Russia would push for them to have more influence in the center than just... Uh, uh, just local rules. So, mm-hmm. uh, right. the, it's one of those cases where 
uh, it's like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Everyone knows what a settlement would look like, uh-huh. but it doesn't mean anyone can actually get there. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. And because of internal politics, different forces pushing in one way or another. And sure. So, so that, but that's kind of where I think it would end up some, eventually. Well, Dmitry Gornberg, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. Produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast.